Please turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. If you were here last week, you will notice that I skipped the last half of chapter 1 and chapter 2, and that's because I don't preach every week, so I get to pick and choose what I want to preach, and uh, I don't have to go through everything. So, I wanted to preach Hebrews 3, so this is what you get. Hebrews chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, and we'll read to the end of verse 6. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, bearing witness to what, what, to what would be spoken by God in the future. But Christ is faithful as the Son over God's house, and we are his house, if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and hope in which we glory. Let's just take a moment to pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the songs that we have been singing that lead us in a direction of worship, that point us towards you and remind us of the gospel truths that we believe. We thank you for this passage, for the passages that we've been working through in Isaiah with Steve. We thank you for your word, that you speak to us through your word and that we can hear from the living God. We pray that this morning that you would open our eyes Open our hearts to hear and receive. Rebuke us where we need to be rebuked. Teach us and train us where we need to be changed. And transform us to be more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, by picking up in chapter 3, the first word that we read is therefore, which tells me that what I should have really done is preached the last half of chapter 1 and chapter 2, because when a therefore is there, it's, it's coming from what's come before. And what came before was Jesus. So last week we looked at the first couple of verses of chapter 1, and Jesus was better than the prophets. Why? Because he was the Son of God. Then the last half of chapter 1 is Jesus is better than the angels. Why? Because Jesus is the Son of God, and angels are not. And then he calls us to pay careful attention to that fact that the one that we're listening to, that we're called to pay attention to, is the Son. That he's not just the Son of God, he is that, but he was also made fully human. He had to be both. He had to be God and man. He is the God-man, and he is the only one who can actually accomplish salvation. He had to be made like us in order to be a suitable sacrifice and an encouraging help. And the last part of chapter 2 says, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. That is, Jesus went through everything you went through. He has experienced every temptation that every human being has ever experienced, and he's gone through and been to the other side. He knows what it's like to defeat sin. Therefore, because he's able to help you, holy brothers and sisters, fix your thoughts on Jesus. The first thing that jumped out to me was holy brothers and sisters, 
we're often called to be holy, right? Be holy for I am holy. That's in 1 Peter and that's quoting the Old Testament. Be holy because the God that you serve is holy. But here believers are actually called holy. He says holy brothers and sisters. He doesn't say be holy. He says you are holy. Holy despite all outward appearances, right? I mean, you've interacted with each other, right? We're not as holy as we like to think sometimes. We're all a bunch of sinners worshiping under the same roof, right? We don't always get along. But we're still called holy, not based on what we do and how we act, but because of something else. We are declared righteous without having actually become righteous. We haven't attained righteousness. We haven't attained holiness, but we are declared righteous. We are positionally righteous before God, which is what Hebrews 2 has been explaining, how we're holy, how we're righteous. We have been made holy by Jesus, both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy, that's us. Jesus is the one who makes us holy. We are of the same family. Now, I don't have time to talk about all of the family stuff, but have you ever just stopped and thought about how neat it is that we're in the family of God? I mean, really, I've been in the church for the past 28 years, And I have heard over and over and over again that if you come to faith and belief in Jesus Christ, you repent of your sins, you are a part of the family of God. And that's true, right? But are you excited about that? Like, do you realize how cool that is? How neat? That the God of the universe, who created everything, as we'll get to a little bit later, he created everything... We rebelled in sin and said, no, Lord, we're we're good. We'll figure things out on our own. We messed everything up. He sent his son to redeem us, and he's brought us into his family, his holy, righteous family, because of what Jesus has done. And sometimes we just take it for granted that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. Some of us have family members that we are ashamed to call our siblings, right? And if we we were to look at the holy, righteous magnitude of who Jesus is and everything that we bring to the table, if we're honest, I think we would say, I would be embarrassed to call myself a sibling, right? We know the darkness of our own hearts. We know how deep we can go into sin in our own minds. And Jesus does too. And yet he calls us brothers and sisters, The tabernacle and temple, they were holy because God dwelt there. Because God took up residence in the temple, in the tabernacle. His his cloud came over and, and went right down into the Holy of Holies and he resided there. That was God's place. If you wanted to meet God, that's where you went. And we're holy now because God takes up residence in us, in his Holy Spirit. Every believer in Jesus Christ has the Holy Spirit of God dwelling within us. Have you thought about how cool that is? That God has taken up residence in you. The stuff in the temple, in the tabernacle, all the utensils, all of the furnishings, all of the shovels, all of the pails, all of the bowls, they they were holy not because they were covered in gold, but because they were used in the service of God. Which... When you think about scooping up animal poop, because there was animals in the tabernacle and temple, right? They had animals there because they were killed there. They were slaughtered and offered as sacrifices to the Lord. 
There were shovels that were designed to pick stuff up, and they were called holy. The pails, the water, all of the stuff that was used to clean up all of the blood, the temple was a bloody place because of the offerings and sacrifices that were brought. They were called holy because they were used in service for God. And we too are holy because we're used in service for God. Because we as his children now act for him and serve him. Then the writer goes on to say, we share in a heavenly calling. We who don't always get along, we share in a heavenly calling. We share something together. We share salvation. We haven't transformed ourselves into something holy to make ourselves acceptable to God. It came from God. It came from heaven to begin with. It's heavenly in its origination. It came from God and he changed us. We have been called to holiness through Jesus Christ. We have called, been called, all of us, together to share in salvation, to share it together and rejoice in it together. We sometimes like to pinpoint the differences that we have, right? Which is why there's a Baptist church here and a Pentecostal church there and a Christian Reformed church over there. And Have you heard the joke about the one guy who went to heaven? There's lots of jokes about guys who went to heaven. There's... <laughs> Probably shouldn't have said it, said it that way. You know, one man died and he went to heaven and St. Peter, he's touring him of the heavenly throne and he's touring him of the house that God built for his people and they walk by and, you know, there's the Pentecostals worshiping in their way in this room and then they go by and here's, uh, here's the Reformed guys over here and they're worshiping over here and, oh yes, there's the other church. Oh, they made it too, what do you know? And, uh, and then there's the closed door and they come to the closed door and the man asks, uh, St. Peter, who's, who's in there? I can hear some singing. And St. Peter turns to him and just says, shh, be quiet. Cracks open the door. And there's the Baptists worshiping behind a closed door. And he says, quiet, quiet. They don't know that they're not the only ones here. <laughs> now, I pick on the Baptists because I've been a Baptist my entire life. And I've seen that, sadly, in some ways. We sometimes get into our heads that we're the only ones who have it right. Right? Rather than sharing in the heavenly calling, sharing in salvation with one another, recognizing that what you believe about eschatology, the millennium, doesn't determine your salvation. That you can potentially even have a different understanding of baptism and still be saved. Because that's not the definitional thing of salvation. It's belief and faith and repentance in Jesus Christ and that's what saves. Now, it's important to believe what you believe, right? To decide one way or the other. But he calls us to remember that we share in salvation, to not nitpick, to not get angry at somebody if they disagree with you to talk civilly because you will be sharing heaven with them one day. Now, there are lines we have to draw, right? Later in the book of Hebrews, and this is an easy blanket sweep statement that I can say and tell you to go read later in Hebrews. Later in Hebrews, he will talk about the essentials of Jesus, the core essentials. There are core things that we need to believe and understand. If you don't believe in Jesus as the Son of God, you don't have the same salvation that is preached through Jesus Christ. There are core essentials. But all those other things, like the color of the carpet, 
Maybe it doesn't matter. <laughs> I'm telling you, maybe it doesn't matter. Because he says, therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, what does he call us to do? Fix our thoughts on all the little differences? No, fix our thoughts on Jesus. Fix your thoughts, not on the differences, but consider, meditate, focus on the heart of your salvation, the essential of your salvation, focus on Jesus himself. Yes, on the things that he he has done, yes, the things that he taught, but he actually calls us to just think about Jesus, to fix our thoughts on who he is. When I took driver's ed uh, years ago, I can't remember, I can't do the math. Um, When I took driver's ed, um, one of the first things that they teach you is 10 and 2, right? I think it's now 3 and 9, whatever it is. That's one of the first things. The second things that they, that they teach you is always look at where you're going, not at the things you want to avoid. Because if you look at the bumper of the car in front of you, you'll drive right into it. If you look at the curb as you're turning, you'll turn into it. Always look at where you want to go, not at the things you're trying to avoid. Now, is the stop sign a good thing to avoid? Yes. Well, not, you're supposed to stop at the stop sign, but you don't want to run into the stop sign. That's what I'm trying to say. Um, Are pedestrians good things to avoid? Yes. But you don't look at them. You look at where you want to go. We shouldn't look at all of the other things. As important as pedestrians are in avoiding them, as important as it is to have doctrine and certain beliefs and understandings, as important as it is to have our theology right, are we focusing on Jesus, where all of our theology comes from, where all of our doctrine comes from, because when we focus on Jesus, we avoid the bad stuff. We avoid hitting all of the wrong things. Focus on Jesus. He is the author, the pioneer, the forerunner, the perfecter of our faith. He's also the author, the pioneer, forerunner, perfecter of our minds and our thoughts. We often think of Jesus as fixing the things that we do. Turn to Jesus, you'll stop doing bad things. Jesus does help us because as we have been told at the end of chapter 2, he has been tempted and he can now help us when we're tempted. But he can fix your thoughts He can fix your mind, which means when you don't know something, he can fix it. When you struggle to understand who he is, or you struggle to understand a specific passage, he can fix it, he can help. When you struggle mentally, maybe not with understanding, but just with functionality. Have you ever woken up in the morning and not even been able to put your thoughts together properly? Okay, Nathan has. Maybe he's the only one. Um, Jesus can fix that. Jesus can fix our thoughts because he has redeemed not just our body, but our minds and our souls. He has paid for all of it. He can fix all of these things. We ought to think about Jesus rightly. We ought to think about Jesus as he wants us to think about him, which is why we need proper doctrine, proper theology. Do you care about what you think about Jesus? Do you care that you think about Jesus correctly and deeply, intensely? Jesus is the Savior of our lives. Yes. 
But do you know that he's more than that? That he's bigger than that? That as you dig deeper into scriptures and discover who Jesus is, you begin to see and understand and explore that Jesus can just simply blow your mind with who he is and all that he does and continues to do. He's calling us to focus on Jesus and not on distractions because when you focus on the real deal, you avoid the distractions. Think carefully about what you think about Jesus. And then he tells us what we should think about Jesus. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. The high priestly work of Christ is a big theme, key central theme in the book of Hebrews. He talks a lot about the priesthood of Jesus, how his priesthood is not like Aaron and the Levites, it's like Melchizedek's. And I don't have time to go into how that differs, but Melchizedek's is bigger and better, therefore Jesus is bigger and better. That's the easy way to tell anybody what the book of Hebrews is about. Jesus is bigger and better, okay? He's bigger and better than Aaron. He's a greater high priest, But Jesus as our apostle, that's different. We get the high priestly stuff. Jesus is our high priest, he's our king, he's a prophet. Those are the three common ones. But he's our apostle. Can you think of any other reference in the New Testament where Jesus is called apostle? In this case, silence is good. Because there is no other example. This is the only time in the entire New Testament that Jesus is referred to as high priest, which we need to be careful because what we sometimes do when we find one example is we get really excited and we go, oh, this must be really something special. Let's see what I can pull and work out of this. This is the only time I I better make this really, really good. It's unique. And quite simply, we understand what apostle means in most contexts, right? The apostle, to be an apostle is to be a sent one, right? The apostles of Jesus Christ were commissioned personally by Jesus and sent out to preach the good news, to preach the gospel, to preach to the nations and to baptize, right? That was their job. They saw the risen Savior and Jesus said, you go out, you are my representatives in the world now. But is that all that we're being told is Jesus is our apostle? It could be, might be. Is Jesus the sent one? Absolutely. He was sent from the Father to this earth to preach the gospel, to preach the good news. He is sent by the Father. And I want to be careful with how I say this, but it is a little bit more because we're not just being told that he was sent, but that he brings with him the purposes and intentions of the Father. The apostles, when they acted, when they spoke, when Paul said, This is what Jesus says. It was authoritative. When Paul spoke, he spoke for Jesus so that anybody who heard Paul could say, Jesus has told me this because Paul was sent by Jesus and represented him. What we're being told, I think, when Jesus is the apostle of the Father, our apostle sent to us, He was sent by the Father, yes, but he brings with him the purposes and intentions of the Father. He doesn't work on his own path. He wasn't sent by the Father to do one thing and decided to do another. He works in perfect unity with the Father. He has decided to come and do exactly what the Father has said. He works together. There's no 
disconnect. There's no brokenness between what Jesus is saying and what God the Father is trying to tell us. So we should listen to him. We need not worry that we're getting mixed messages. The Son speaks for the Father. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, faithful to the Father, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. So now we're getting a, a comparison. If you, if you want to understand how faithful the Son was, if you want to understand how faithful Jesus was, here's Moses. Look at Moses. See what Moses did. And understand that Jesus is faithful too. He says Moses was faithful. The author does not belittle Moses. He doesn't belittle the law. He doesn't belittle what Moses did and what Moses said to show the superiority of Jesus which is what we often do when we're trying to make a point, right? When we, tro- when we want to say something is better, we often push down the other thing. He doesn't compare the faults and failures of Moses. Did Moses have faults and failures? Can you think of some? Yes. Moses was not a perfect man, but he's called faithful. He doesn't compare the faults and failures of Moses with the uh, success and achievements of Jesus. Why? I think because that lowers the bar. Politicians do this all the time, right? Have you ever, you, you've seen those ads, right? You've seen an ad pop up, a commercial, and it's like 15, 20 seconds, and what does it usually say? Justin doesn't know what he's doing. He just got into office because he's got his daddy's name. Vote conservative. Okay. You, you told me that Justin's bad, Justin's wrong, and I'm just picking on Justin because he's the current prime minister. Um, but that didn't actually tell me what you're going to do as the conservative party, right? Why should I vote for you? What are you going to do? How are you going to help me? We often want to say, that's bad. Look at how bad that person is. Look at how bad that method is. Look at how, how wrong and how that doesn't work. And we point out all the faults and then say, go here. But that lowers the bar because then if Justin's way down here, you only have to be a wee bit better to get over that, right? With Moses, the author says he was faithful. He did exactly what he was called to do. Bar really high. Wow, praise him. Look at what Moses did. He did exactly what he was supposed to do. He brought the law. He led the nation of Israel out of Egypt. He was faithful. He did what he was called to do. Now look at Jesus. He's even better. He's even more faithful, just as faithful. You don't have to cheapen the message. You don't have to lower the bar to say something is better. In fact, when you've got a higher bar, it praises that other thing, that other individual, that other person, even better. It raises the standard. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses. Moses, lots of honor. Jesus, more honor. Just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself, for every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. So he doesn't need to belittle Moses. Why? Because he's not comparing their function. He's comparing their faithfulness. Sometimes when we compare things, we think we're comparing apples to apples, but what's really happening in Scripture is apples and oranges. Are apples and oranges fruit? Yes, they're both fruit. Do they both have seeds? Yes. Do they both have peels? Yeah, of some kind, right? There are a number of things that we can point to and say, yes, they are the same. They have the same things. But are they the same fruit? No. 
You bite into one and you'll notice the difference. Are they both sweet? Yes. But they are not the same. They don't do the same thing. They don't taste the exact same. The author is saying, I'm comparing faithfulness, not function. Moses was servant. Jesus is son. And then he uses a comparison of a builder and a house. Now, Jesus, as builder of the house, we could take that a couple of ways. The first is a physical building, a physical house, right? Jesus is the builder of the house. What's the house? Well, we could say the universe, right? Go back to Hebrews 1 in the first couple of verses. He created all things. He is the builder of this house, of the place that we live. And those things, the building, they're designed to bring honor to the builder, You think of the cathedral that's downtown, the massive spires and spindles and stonework, intricate intricate, um, stained glass windows. We went to, Steve and Sam and I, we went to Montreal last year and we went to the Basilica of Notre Dame. And you don't even have to go in, you just stand outside and you're in awe of what is in front of you. A massive building and you walk in and you see the the way that they design things for light to shine through certain windows and highlight certain features that they've built. It's incredible the way that they could think these things through and build such enormous, massive structures that hold together and stay built. Those things are designed to bring honor to the one who designed it, who built it, who thought it up. It's designed to bring honor to the architect. All of this universe, all of the things that we have are designed to point us to the architect designed to point us to Jesus. So when we look at a tree and we look at how a little tiny acorn can become a massive oak, we're supposed to go, wow, that is incredible. Who could have thought of that? Look at the mind of the architect. It's meant to bring honor to him. It could mean that. And in some sense, it it does mean that. But there's also another meaning of the term house. And that's household, right? Family. Jesus is also builder of the house. And verse 2 of chapter 3 would actually uh, lead us to prefer this kind of understanding. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. In the physical building, maybe. But really, what he's talking about is the nation of Israel, the house, the family, the chosen people of God. Moses was faithful in that house. Moses was the builder of Israel, right? He led the nation out of Egypt. He brought them to Sinai. He brought them the law. He brought them their way of living for the next couple thousand years. He was a national hero. He was the architect of their corporate life. He brought together their way of living. And Moses was one of the most honored people in all of Jewish history. One could argue maybe that Abraham was more honored. But Moses is honored in a special way because He's, he's the one who brought the law. Jesus is both the builder of the house, he's the builder of creation, yes, and that's important to remember, but he's also the builder of the household of God, the new creation, the redeemed chosen people of God, the redeemed community of God's people. What we're being told, I think, is Moses built the people of God from the ground up by leading them out of Egypt, by bringing them the law. That was incredible, and look at what he did. He was faithful. 
But Jesus is the true architect, the true builder of the people of God because he does something that Moses could not do. He does something that Moses, in all that he represents, the law, could not do. The law does not bring anyone into the redeemed community of God's people. The law of Moses never saved anybody. But Jesus does. Jesus is what actually makes us holy. You can go back and read Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, and there are a lot of laws, right? There are a lot of steps, a lot of things that we need to, uh, as the Jewish nation of Israel, we need to look at and follow step by step. But as you work through those, you begin to realize, oh my goodness, I'm always unclean. I am always unholy. Because I'm doing all of these things and I've already messed up over here. And by the time I fix that, I'm unholy over here. The law never made anybody holy. Jesus did. Jesus does. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. His purpose was not to make anybody holy, but Christ is faithful as the son over God's house. So now we see the difference in the function. We've seen the faithfulness compared, both faithful, but where's the difference in function? Where's the difference between the apple and the orange? Moses was the servant in God's house. Jesus is the son over God's house. Sonship is better. Servanthood is still good, but not as good as being son. As son, you're an heir. As son, you have power. You have speaking rights for the Father. As servant, you don't have that. You do what you're told. Now, servant here, and I want to be careful, um, I'm not a Greek scholar, and I'm not going to pretend to be, but the word here for servant gives us an indication, gives us the thought that it's not just slave. Sometimes slave and servant are used interchangeably in the New Testament. So depending on which translation you have, sometimes it says slave or bond slave, sometimes it says servant. It's all translating the same word. It's meant to understand that you are a, a slave who does what you're told. In this case, the word here is telling us that it's a high-ranking domestic official, trusted official, somebody who accurately represents the house that you come from. You're not a part of the house, you have no heir. No inheritance. You are not an heir. You don't get to claim any rights to anything in the house. But you do accurately represent the one you are sent from. Moses was faithful in his function. He faithfully bore witness to something. Not himself, not the things that he was building, but to what was to come. Now the quick and short and easy answer is, is what was to come? Jesus. That means that everything in the law and the prophets, everything that Moses did and said is designed to show us and teach us and focus us to fix our eyes on Jesus, to point us towards Jesus. They are designed to help us to actually consider and meditate and focus on him. Moses was faithful in his function bearing witness to Jesus, bearing witness to the Son of God. Now, 
what I want to do with this verse, I'll tell you what I want to do with this verse, and then what I'm not going to do with this verse. What I want to do with this verse is say, Moses was a faithful servant in the household of God, bearing witness to Jesus, therefore you and I should be a faithful servant and bear witness to Jesus. And because I am the pastor of youth and children and family ministries, I'm going to tell you exactly how you can be faithful. You can sign up for Children's Church and help bear witness to Jesus. And we are called to be faithful in the household of God, right? We are called to be faithful servants. You must learn to wash one another's feet. The first will be last and the last will be first. We, we, we are told that the life, livelihood of Christianity, that working together as a family, we are called to serve one another, not to put ourselves first, right? Okay, a couple of you agree, right? We are called to serve one another. That is one of our functions as the family of God. And what I want to do is take that and say, look at Moses' faithfulness. You be just like Moses and bear witness to Jesus. The problem is, is that's not what the author does. He doesn't compare us to Moses and Moses' faithfulness. He compares us to the house, not the servant in the house. And we are his house. If indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and hope in which we glory. Which is really frustrating for me because I had a great spiel about how you should sign up for nursery and junior church. Using that verse. Oh, it was going to get all of you to sign up. But I can't do that now because we're not compared to Moses. We're compared to the house. So then we have to ask, what is the main function of a house? What is the main function of the family of God? If we were to take the building analogy, I think we could, and it would be fun and neat to say, okay, you are the building of God. You have been built like a house, a strong structure. Does God build any crummy houses? No. Therefore, stand firm. The best kind of house is the one that stands firm, right? It's not a very good house if it falls over. M has these little building blocks, pink and green and blue building blocks, and they're not Lego, they're not the really small ones, but they still really hurt when you step on them. Um, they're, they're slightly bigger, and she builds them. But what she does is she takes just the single one, and she builds them one on top of the other. And she builds them about yay high, and she goes, wow, look, Dad, look what I built. And then she lets go and poof, just falls over. Or her sister comes over and just knocks them over, and she, everybody gets mad, and people start crying, and it's just a horrible affair. But the, the house that she builds is not very good. She builds a tower, but it quickly falls over. Now, granted, she's two and a half, so we'll give her some slack, okay? She hasn't quite built and understand how to be a good architect yet. We, as the people of God, as the building of God, are called to stand firm. We bring honor to the builder when we don't roll over and fall over, when we don't get blown around by the winds of the current and the winds of the age and the winds of the culture, and the things that are happening, when we're built on the rock and we stand firm, not on the sand, we bring honor to Jesus when we do that, the one who has built the house of God. But as the family of God, we're called to serve, sure. But I think the thrust of this passage, going back to verse 1, 
Our function is to be a family that holds firmly to the forerunner of the faith. Did you get that? I used alliteration. Is it alliteration when you use the same letter at the beginning? It is alliteration. Our function is to be the family that holds firmly to the forerunner of the faith, fixing our eyes on Jesus. That's our function, to hold fast to our confidence and hope. Jesus himself. To focus on the true architect of the people of God, the one who has built this rabbly bunch. We don't look holy, but he's brought us here. We don't look that great on the outside, but he's changed and transformed our hearts. And bit by bit, he's changing the outward appearance too. We glory in Jesus. Hold fast. Hold firmly to him. Some take this passage, this one verse, and we are his house, if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and hope in which we glory. Some want to take this verse as a warning. And there are warning passages in Hebrews. Watch out, be careful. Today, pay attention now. There are warning passages in the book of Hebrews. But in this context, It almost seems out of place to be a warning. And we are his house if you hold firmly. Be careful to hold firmly to Jesus or you might not be his house in the end. Some people want to take it that way. If that's how you understand it, we can talk after. I think in the context of what the author is saying, calling us to fix our thoughts on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, he is saying That if any individual, from any background, from any age, from any lifestyle, if indeed you hold firmly to Jesus, hold firmly to your confession and confidence and hope in him, you are his family. That is, this passage isn't a warning to watch out. You might not be in the family of God. He's saying that if you believe in Jesus, you can be definitely sure you are. You don't have to worry. Despite all outward appearances of not being holy, do you hold to Jesus? If you can say yes to holding to Jesus, you're in the family. Why? Because it's not the things that you do that make you holy. It's what he does and what he's done that makes us holy. Nobody who holds on to Jesus for 10, 20, 30, 50, 80 years will at the end of their lives, on their deathbed, need to worry about whether they are in the family of God. Holding on to Jesus is worth it. It's worth holding on to him because we are his family. Notice how it doesn't say we will be his house. It says right now, currently, we are his house. We are his family. He is not ashamed right now at this moment, even in your imperfect, silly, arguing state. Even in the state where you just mess up more than you get things right. Even in that state, you are still his house if you're holding on to Jesus. Are you holding on to Jesus this morning? Are you fixing your thoughts on him? And it's more than that because he finishes verse six with, in which we glory. 
That is, we're meant to have pride in Jesus. The term pride has been stolen by the culture, right? It now represents something else. Do you have pride in the fact that Jesus has saved you? Do you boast in that? Do you have joy in that? I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. We're not very good at boasting, are we? We don't know how to do it. We're just really bad at it. We often boast about stupid and unimportant things, and people go, wow, just chill out, man. Like, nobody cares how many goals you scored at hockey on Saturday. Like, just relax. Um, we, we often look at people who boast and say, wow, you're on a high horse, you need to come down. Or we look at people who don't boast enough and s- just point at them and say it's a false humility. Well, you should take pride in what you do and, oh, no, what? Thank you for singing this morning, Dave. I was really blessed by your leading of the the worship and song. And Dave goes, oh, no, it wasn't me. It was all the Lord. Yeah, I guess. But in some sense, you had to be a faithful servant and do what God has called you to do. We don't know how to boast because we're always told from the youngest age, age, don't brag, right? Don't brag about the things that you have. Don't boast about the things that you have that somebody else doesn't. Don't don't try to make yourself look better than somebody else based upon the things that you have or the things that you've accomplished, right? But here we're called to take pride in that, to boast about Jesus, to glory in Jesus. Amelia has these new shoes, relatively new shoes, that are her pink puppy shoes. And if you've come by her house at any time, Um, or you're here throughout the week when she's wearing them, one of the very first things that she says when she sees you is, me pink puppy shoes. (laughs) Just the first thing that she says, look at my puppy shoes. Look at what I'm wearing. Look at them. They're pink, and they're puppies, and they're mine. I have them. I'm wearing them. You don't have them, but I got them. Like, she doesn't say that. Um, She takes extreme pride and joy in her shoes, Who got those for you, Amelia? Nana and Papa. They got my pink puppy shoes for me. Wow, they must love you, right? Yeah, my puppy shoes. (laughs) She loves her puppy shoes. She wants to wear them in the house. No, you can't wear them in the house. Okay, then let's go outside. No, we're not going outside right now. It's raining. She just wants to wear them all the time. She loves them. And she'll let you know. She'll let you know that she loves her pink puppy shoes. Do we boast about Jesus in that way? I can't believe I'm going to say this, but do we boast about Jesus like our pink puppy shoes? Are we excited about what Jesus has done and given to us? So much so that every person that you meet, you go, look at what I've got. I've got salvation in him. Oh, it just makes me giddy. Who gave that to you? My Father in heaven. Wow, he must really love you. Yeah, my pink puppy shoes. Nobody's going to remember anything but pink puppy shoes. Oh, dear, this shouldn't have ended with this illustration. We are called, yes, to be a servant. Yes, to focus and fixate our minds on Jesus himself, to get rid of distractions. 
Yes, we're called to emulate Moses as he was a faithful servant in bearing witness to Jesus Christ. That's what the Great Commission is. Go and bear witness. Go and tell. Make disciples. Baptize. Let people know the good news. I think all of that comes together in one simple command in boasting in him. When you're excited and proud of something, you boast about it. Now the problem is, is we usually boast about things that are unimportant. Which is usually why we teach kids to stop bragging, stop boasting. It's not that important. The salvation of Jesus Christ brought to us through his work and death on the cross, his resurrection, his ascension to the throne, his intercessory work of high priest, great high priest, for you and for me is something worth boasting about. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Sometimes we have to just get over the shame part, right? I'm not embarrassed by the gospel. I'm not embarrassed to be a Christian. I'm not embarrassed to talk about my faith. Here the author says, no, 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 no. It's not just getting over the embarrassment. It's not just getting over your, your weird timidity about what Jesus has done. It's actually boasting and taking pride in what he's done. Because it's not about us. It's not about what we've done. So we can actually boast in Jesus because none of it is pointing at us, which is what boasting usually is. Look at what I've done. Look at the things that I have, the things that I've accomplished. Boasting in Jesus, look at what he's done, what he has, all things, what he's accomplished, the redemption of a sinful, lost human people. We are walking examples that the impossible can happen. The Old Testament tells us nothing can be done with humanity. It is lost in unholiness and unrighteousness. Jesus comes and he changes lives. He changes hearts. And your job, yes, there are many. Yes, there are many things Jesus has called us to. But our job is to be excited about it. About what he's done in our lives. You think if the queen showed up. I recognize I got myself in trouble with a few people last week with my comments about the queen. So I will redeem myself with some good ones. If the queen showed up and gave you whatever the queen hands out, if the queen gave you a special plate from her table, if the queen gave you the flower out of her hat, if she gave you the hat itself, for those of you who appreciate the queen, what would you do? You'd display it, right? You'd be pretty proud of it. You would take it and you'd go, wow, look at what she's given me. Look at what I have now. And you'd actually probably put it in a place in your house when people came over they would see it and want to ask so that you could tell the story. Are your lives oriented in a way that when people come into your home, into your workplace, into your life, that they see what Jesus has done, what he has given you, they see it and they're forced to ask the question, what is that? Who gave you that? Who gave you that peace? Who gave you that happiness? Who gave you that? So that you can then tell them the story. So that you can boast in what he's done. I'm going to ask our musicians to come up and lead us in song as we boast with our voices about what Jesus has done.